make a New Year's resolution to look better at church. <laughs> I like it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for your love and your kindness. That you have invited us into your family. That your way is easy and light. And that we get to rejoice because we have Jesus in our midst that you are with us. And so as we study your scriptures, grow us, change us, move on us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, it is that time of year again. We didn't do this last week because we took a very different approach to our Sunday gathering, but it's that time of year where um, your gym has a lot of newcomers in it, right? Your favorite treadmill at 2 o'clock in the afternoon is being occupied by somebody else. Maybe even this morning at Redeemer Church, somebody new sat in your seat. How dare they? Bars and pubs, they're not as full as they were just a week ago because people are trying out dry January or swearing off deep fried food. And this year comes with new hopes, a new you, a better you, maybe even possibly a more financially smart you. Uh, How many of you made New Year's resolutions this year? All right, got a handful of them. I love it. Um, I was reading the top 10 dumbest New Year's resolutions, and they were all the things that I normally put down, and at the end of the article, it says, do something realistic. Do something you'll actually do, Brett. I like this time of year. Not because I think when the clock struck 12, something magical happens. But the new year, much maybe like an anniversary um, or a birthday, a significant moment. However, this one, like those, comes around every so often. Causes us to stop and wonder, what are we doing with our lives? What's working well for us? What's not going so well for us? And this is a particular season in which many people are in that mode and they're talking with one another about the things that they hope to achieve or hope to do, the goals they hope to actually conquer this year. And it's exciting and encouraging, but I think it leaves us all asking a major question. And it's that of, how do people change? How do we actually change? Why do I want to change? How do I even go about change? And whether this morning you come in here and you're religious or not religious, you believe in God or you don't believe in God, many people in the mind of just progress in life deem change an important aspect. People want to better themselves. They want to find a way to become a healthier, happier you. And they take this time of year to really focus on that. Have you given much thought This year, it's only been like eight days, seven days, to what you want to change, or how do you even begin to go about change? And I'm going to tell you something this morning. I'm going to take an entirely biased view as a follower of Jesus who believes the scriptures, 
You subjected yourself to what I'm going to share on a Sunday morning at a church. And I'm going to share a very biased view, admittedly, of how I think people change. And what it has to do with is what you love. What you love determines what you live for. What you love tells you what you think is going to give you the good life. And the good life can be at this point whatever you define it to be. Maybe it's happiness or success. And you think, these are the things that I need to do. These are the things that I love and want, and I'm going to pursue them in order to get the good life. And I want you to take just, I don't know, 10 seconds, 15 seconds to mentally take note or whip your phone out right now. It's totally cool if you do that. You might even check the other thing you love on Sunday mornings, the scores. All right, I've given you the time. And write down the things you love. Family, friendship, serving, money, success, health, yourself. What are the things that you love? And it's no secret The things that we love are the very things that we're going to give our attention towards, our affection towards. We're going to think about, we're going to dwell on, we're going to try to pursue. Anytime we love something and we dedicate attention to it, what we're doing is we're saying, in this moment, this thing is more important than all these other things I could be doing. For example, if you actually chose, weren't dragged here this morning, chose to come to church this morning, you're saying... I love something about what's going on here on Sunday mornings. Whether it's singing or gathering with God's people or taking in God's word, there's something here this morning that you're choosing over whatever else it is that you could be doing on a Sunday morning at 1028. And you say, this has more value. And we do this every single day with our time, with what's been given to us, and we say, these are the things that I'm going to pour my life into. You guys, you guys track with that. When you get down to your loves, you begin to understand how they determine and direct your life. I'd like to say it like this. Whatever captures your heart this morning is what you, is what I will live for. Whatever captures my heart captivates me, grabs my affection, grabs my attention. Uh, Thomas Cramner said, what the heart loves, the will chooses. Excuse me. Whatever the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. So your heart loves something. Your will chooses it, and then you justify why you're pouring time into that thing and not that thing over there. Why you're here in this moment and not somewhere else doing something else. Jesus said... In Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever you treasure, whatever deep down grabs your attention, that is what, that is what your life is going to be all about. And one of our favorite philosophers, borderline, put him in that theologian category as well, I I personally would, Dallas Willard said, actions the things you do, are not impositions on who we are, but are expressions of who we are. So actions are expressions that the things that we do, all right, they come out of what? Our heart. Our actions, the way we act, treat, behave, live in this world around us, 
They come out of what we love. He says they come out of our heart and the inner realities it supervises and interacts with. Why is that? Because at the center of who you are is your heart. And not just the thing that is pumping blood, the organ inside of you, but as the scriptures talk about, it's from the very place in which you live. It's from out of your heart, your mouth speaks. Out of your heart, you have actions that take place in your life. And so the question when we ask this morning is, how am I going to change? It comes down to even just the simple example of, look, it's no secret, Brett Anderson loves pizza. Like, I I do. We've had it twice this week and are having it again this afternoon. I love pizza. I also, as I've shared before, would, would love to maybe shed a few more pounds. And I've got to ask myself this question, what do I love more in the moment? And I can tell you what I love more, Grace and Hammer, a lot more, all right? See, what I love in the moment is going to determine the things that I even do. And so this morning with this big question, whether it's big, massive changes in our lives, whether it's from, as we're going to see in the life of Saul, becoming a follower of Jesus, or maybe even down to the very littlest of things in your life, when we ask the question, How do I change? It has to get at the heart. Let's check this out. In Acts, if you just reverse a bit, I told you to turn to eight, but if you can just skim back up to chapter seven, uh, there's a man who is about ready to be murdered for his faith in Jesus. His name is Stephen. He gives this great speech on how Jesus is the fulfillment of all that Judaism has been pointing towards. And then the scene shifts, and in verse 58 it says, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. We talked about Stephen. We looked at his story a little while back. But there's a little detail given to us here. There is a man named Saul who has now appeared on the scene. And this man, Saul, appears to have the respect and some sort of authority within his own community. The scriptures go on in chapter 8, verse 1, and say, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout all the region of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This morning, we got to ask ourselves, who is this man, Saul, and what does he stand for? Some of the details that we can pick up from just this little section of scripture and what I read in Galatians this morning, if you were here for that, Saul appears to be a respected man amongst his community. He himself acknowledges that he was excelling beyond all of his peers in what he was learning and teaching. We read that he is a Pharisee, and we're going to get into that in just a moment, but he has, in this section of scripture, what seems to be some kind of authority even over his peers that are around him as they are laying down their garments. Why? You can't stone anybody with your coat on. 
So we lay those down at his feet to pick up these rocks, to throw them at Stephen. And it's his approval that he is accepting the very actions that they are participating in. We know that he is zealous for his cause. And what's his cause? It's that of Judaism, very much concerned for the name of Yahweh, entrenched in his traditions, knowing the scriptures better than anybody here in America, I can tell you that right now. He is zealous, passionate, young. His career is taking off. When you go outside of this text, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 9, Paul, or Saul himself, he writes this. For though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I'm a boss. That's what he's saying. I'm top dog. I know what I'm doing. I have all the reason for confidence. Here's my pedigree. Hi, Saul was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. Of, I can track my lineage, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, the passion for living under that law, he says, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He believed in his cause so much that he would kill for it, murder others, imprison them. As To righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for Christ's sake. This man, when you look at his resume, confident in himself, confident in his religion, confident in his self-righteousness, confident that he was a Pharisee, And Pharisees, as you read the Gospels, they get some bit of a bad rap, although you do see Pharisees pop up here and there that are very much curious about Jesus and wanting to know what Jesus is all about, and some even assisting in helping Jesus. So to be very careful when we talk about them and just lump them into a certain category, but Paul himself would fall into that category that is causing things to be worse for those who are following his way than if they had not been following him at all. And it's really interesting as you consider Paul and make some observations about his life. He, in his mind, had the good life. A Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, following the law, pretty much the smartest man in the room, intimidating to others, no doubt, respected by others. This is the kind of guy that if I see him at a conference, I want to go hang out with and spend some time with because he's got it put together. Paul is not looking for any change, is he? He likes who he is. He likes the trajectory of his life. He likes what he is zealous about. He doesn't see any need to improve. Let me tell you this about Paul. Nobody in the church is going to invite him to their Sunday gathering. (laughs) Nobody in this church is going to say, hey, come on over. We got a house church. I know you're ripping us out of our homes and tearing our families apart and want to kill us, but we really want to share Jesus with you this morning. No, that's not what's going on anywhere in this text. He's not going to be invited to their gatherings. That would be a death wish. Saul is not one who is just skeptical of Christianity. 
He is despise, he despises it. He wants to stomp it out. He wants it to be done with. Here is a person who has it all, who thinks he has it all together, and yet God wants to intervene in his life. And this morning, this takes really two courses. One, if you're not a follower of Jesus in here, I'm not going to convince you or win you in an argument to Jesus. You'll be won out of that argument at some point. But I want you to see what great lengths Jesus goes to to see this man who really had no trajectory towards becoming a follower of Jesus, was running in the exact opposite direction, and yet Jesus pursues him and calls him into this wonderful faith, taking somebody from darkness to light and radically reforming, reshaping their heart, placing them in his kingdom, and then using this person for that purpose. That's, that's one category in which you can think about this idea of how change happens as God intervenes. Also, for us this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're just like, dang it, every year, I want to be a kinder person. I don't want to blow up on my kids as much or blow up at my parents as much because I'm so frustrated with the, life, the way life has gone. I see this need in my life, but I don't know how to get there. This morning, we need to focus on the idea of your heart, the command center of your life, and how God moves and intervenes and works in that area to then transform and change you. So really, as you're sitting in here, you're sitting in one of two places, and I would hope that you would hear what's being said. For Saul, let's see what happens. It says in chapter 9, verse 1, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is the way of Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul, so angry, living in such fury against the way of Jesus that he wants to basically go out and capture them and punish them. Verse three, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and will be told to you what you are to do. I love this. No altar call. No holy front of the room or holy back of the room. Saul, you're against me. Now obey me. That's that. Saul, you are against me. Now walk in my ways. Let's see what this man does. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, 
how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. He has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of men, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me that you might regain your sight, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight, then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is an absolutely incredible story of the pursuit of God, the response and the responsibility of man to be obedient to that call of God on someone's life. And what I love here is that what changes in Saul's life from just chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9? He met... Jesus, yeah. He met, he was awake. He met who? He met Jesus. Thank you. That's awesome. And and he didn't just meet the like Western evangelical Jesus light. You know, throw a few bucks in the plate as it passes by. Come a couple times a month if you'd like. He'll make you a little happier, a little healthier. Your kids might be a little better and you'll prosper. He meets the Jesus that knocks you off your horse. Right? That blinds you. That he then loses his appetite, calls him to his enemies, calls his enemies to him, and they pray over him. He calls him to this new radical life in which he would entirely lose himself all the while finding himself. Because he met Jesus. And he met the true, resurrected, living Jesus. And I want to tell you something. If you're going to experience change in your life from this Christian perspective, if you want to see your life reordered, you first and foremost come under the authority, the kingship, the lordship, yes, the saving aspect of him, but all those other aspects of who Jesus is, and he begins to reorder your life. That's when life happens. And here's the thing about Christianity. I don't know what you've been told in the past, but Christianity is not a self-help class on how to make bad people better. Christianity is about death to life. Christianity is about darkness and his kingdom of darkness that we're essentially born into because of sin, absolute disobedience to God and his ways. And then we're brought into his kingdom of light. Now, agents of his goodness and grace This is what Christianity is about. Now, you as a person outside of God can maybe work on becoming a nicer person and a friendlier person. I will concede that all day long. I have met mean Christians and I've met really nice non-Christians. Haven't we? Yes, we have. I'm not saying you can't better yourself somehow in this world apart from God, but you see Christianity, and what I'm sharing with you this morning is not about bad to better, but about darkness to light. Outside of God's grace and his kingdom and the way in which we're to order our life to coming under, how our life is to be ordered in him. That's what this message is about. How, if you've met Jesus, has the order of your life changed? How have your loves changed? 
Timothy Keller, one of the best modern-day Bible teachers, theologians, scholars, he says one of the most simple statements that I can think of. When you become a Christian, you begin to hate the things you once loved and love the things that you used to hate. That's, that's what it means to be a Christian. Your whole life is being radically transformed and reordered. Dallas Willard puts it in a lot more, uh, maybe sophisticated terms. Go ahead and flash this up here. You've seen this many times. We've shown this throughout when we talked about the disciplines. But there's an order of dominance in our life. And the way this works is the order of dominance in a life that is away from God, we care about our body first and foremost. That is the worldly prerogative. My body, that can be health. That can be how I project myself, how I look. That gets first and foremost care. Then we move a little bit more inward to kind of the soul, who we are as a person, our mind, our thoughts, feelings, spirit. And then at the very bottom is God. Whether you think about him or not, there is some sort of God that you subject yourselves to, even if it's an imaginary God, which is you yourself in the place of God. Now, the life of dominance under God God is at the top, and God is moving in our spirit and in our mind and in our soul and in our body, and what that looks like in this example is the body serves the soul, the soul serves the mind, the mind the spirit, and the spirit serves God. This is how Jesus changes us. He reorders our life to where in which we once lived for ourselves. We once lived in a way that we only cared for the maybe outward and our body and health and all to where now God is the priority in our life. And all of those things are brought into wholeness to serve God himself. How does Jesus change us for everyday living? Well, it's that simple answer of the good news. The gospel makes you come face to face with what has put outside of God's presence, the Bible calls it sin, and it declares the inner human condition results in the outer human actions. What does that mean? Well, at one point since birth, we're against God, alienated from him. Because of Jesus, we're brought into his goodness, his kingdom, his love, his mercy, his forgiveness. And now we're living in a whole different way. And it brings about a freedom. The freedom to live under his ways. And this becomes our motivation. If you want change this morning, if you look at your life and you're thinking something's not right, it's because your loves are out of order. What your heart desires, what it's running after, what it's thirsty for, has somehow taken prominence over what God would have in your life. Now, there is a way, as I was sharing earlier, to seek change to seek change outside of God and away from him. Plato talks about this. He says something amongst our, along the lines of this. The word self-control, anybody familiar with the word self-control? <laughs> Who, who's good at that? Like, well, there's only like three pieces left and we can't take it home, kids. Somebody's got to eat it. <laughs> self-control is important. The word self-control is really trying to get at this. There's a number of desires in the self. The self is multifarious. The self has many different desires. And the problem is that these desires get out of place. And they begin to grate against each other. And they don't cohere. 
So what you're really looking for is a self in which the desires are rightly or properly ordered. I agree with Plato. I do. And the Bible would agree with him as well. Our desires have gotten out of whack. Paul's desires were completely out of whack. And when he meets Jesus, his whole life comes under something entirely different. How does this happen on a much more just personal, individual level? I'm going to read this last quote to you and then finish out with a thought. Once again, the Scottish theologian Thomas Chalmers said, we only cease to be a slave of one appetite because another has brought into subordination. You only stop watching the blazers (laughs) because they're really stinking right now and there's something much more valuable I can be doing with my time. (laughs) All right, the second they start to come up a little bit, oh boy, Dave, you better believe they become important. He goes on and says, a youth might cease to idolize sensual pleasure and partying around, but it's only because the idol of material gain and career success has gotten the acidensity. There is not one personal transformation in which the heart is left without an ultimate object of beauty and joy. Its desire for one particular object may be conquered, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. Your heart has to desire something this morning. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Do you want to change today, Redeemers? Is there something that you look at in your life, whether it's from what I was originally talking about, light to darkness, because you don't know Jesus, and like Paul, you are persecuting, you are against it. Somehow you got suckered into this morning, and now all of a sudden your heart is exploding with some kind of draw, some kind of pull, and saying, I don't know what this all entails, but I want that. I've been fearful of Christianity. They're going to try to convert me to some political party or some way of thinking or some way of life. Listen, I'm going to let Jesus and the Holy Spirit handle a whole lot of that in your life. What I am calling you to is darkness to light, to know who Jesus is and his goodness. But church, not to stop there because yes, we have been sanctified, but we are being sanctified and will be sanctified. And what that means is Jesus is not leaving you. He is not leaving me alone. He wants the entirety of your heart and he wants to influence every aspect in which you are living. Where this morning do you place your hope? Is it in the Jesus that can do this? Does your heart love him, pursue him? For some of us, we need to just get back to the basics, remembering his faithfulness. For others, Paul was immediately, Saul was immediately brought into community with Ananias. You want to see change? Look at his goodness. Be around his people. Be brought into the awareness that God can and does do this. This is the hope that I give us. Church, for the rest of this morning, as we get ready to set our affection on him through song, through communion, think about, dwell on Jesus. May he capture your heart this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you're able to do this in our lives. And you can bring about change. We feel hopeless. We felt like, whether it's, addiction or a drawing towards something that is unhealthy, that you're able to move in and captivate our hearts. And I pray this morning you'd move in those areas in us. Make yourself enlarged. And may we love you, pursue you, and seek your face. In Jesus' name, amen.
You get this great hope this morning. Would you just stand with me as I share this quote with you and kind of tell you what we're going to do for the rest of the morning? Uh, John Wesley, he wrote, My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. This is what God has done for you. You're no longer bound to the bondage that holds you. Your chains have fallen off. Your heart has been set free. You get to follow and pursue him. And we do that this morning as we continue to sing song and set our mind and our heart and our words corporately as a church on who God is. We're going to sing two songs. And during these two songs, the tables, which are both up front, are open. If you're a follower of Jesus, we're going to remember as we take communion together as a church family, remembering what he has done, the hope that we have in him. We have opportunity to give to what God is doing there back in that white box. But this morning, most importantly, fix your gaze, set your mind on him. Don't just think about the things you need to quit or stop, but think on who Jesus is and may he capture your heart this morning. Let's worship your hand together.